All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study of his word today. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path and that it is the means by which we are sanctified, by which we grow and mature, and it is because it is in your word that we learn who you are, who we are, and all that you have provided for us through your grace, through our position in Jesus Christ. And Father, it is through your word that we learn who Jesus Christ is. We learn of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament, predicting one who would come who would uh, solve the problem of sin and have victory over the seed of the serpent. And Father, we, as we study today, we come to a focal, focal point on who Jesus is as the Messiah uh, focusing on not only the interchange with the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew, but also uh, the Old Testament prophecy in Psalm 110 related to the identity of the Messiah. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our understanding of who Jesus is as we study your word, and also that we will be uh, more mindful of the importance of understanding uh, the Old Testament and its use in the New Testament, the Old Testament proclamations and prophecies of Messiah, that we may have a greater conviction of who Jesus is as our Savior. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. Matthew 22, verse 41 and we're going to look at six verses here that are fairly short. There is, as it were, not a tremendous amount of depth here, but that's a little misleading because we have to understand it within the Old Testament context. It's always important when we go through Matthew, as I have done in this series, to take the time when we have these quotations, these references to Old Testament prophecies and promises and various passages that we go back to the Old Testament to understand what is being said, uh, why it is being said, and how it fits into the picture of identifying who this Jesus of Nazareth is. The, the, the New Testament didn't just uh, sort of drop out of the sky uh, without a context. But the context goes back to the creation, goes back to Genesis chapter 1. And if we're going to identify who Jesus is, we need to start with Genesis 1 and not start with Matthew or Luke or John. And this becomes more and more true today in our culture as we live in a world that is more and more biblically 
and historically illiterate. And I don't say that in a uh, any kind of a judgmental tone. Uh, it just to reference the fact that they are not knowledgeable uh, of the Bible. They don't know the Bible. In previous generations, you could uh, you could pretty much assume that if you mentioned or talked about Jesus, that they had a fairly good idea of who Jesus was. They would have a fairly good idea of who. Uh, of what Christmas was all about, that it celebrated the birth of Jesus. They may not really understand a whole lot about uh, the plan of salvation or the gospel or uh, some of the spiritual truths related to that, but they had just from cultural understanding and knowledge uh, about certain things about the Judeo-Christian worldview. But we don't live in that kind of a world anymore. And I want to encourage you that if you are a Christian and you're trying to communicate the gospel with somebody, not to assume that they know these these facts. In fact, probably for much of our lives, um, that's been true. I remember with some shock back when I was in the seventh grade, my seventh grade English teacher mentioned we read something uh, in I don't remember what it was in, in, in class at that time, but somehow it brought something related to the Bible into the picture. It um, may have been a story related to Christmas, and she told the class, or told my class later in the day, that she had had a student earlier in the day say, well, well who Jesus? I never heard of him before. Now, that was a few decades ago. So if that was true of one or two people in Houston, Texas, several decades ago, it's probably even more true of numerous people, maybe 40, 50, 60 percent of people who live in Houston don't have any idea of who Jesus is, even if we live in, in part of the Bible Belt. So when we're explaining the gospel to folks, it's helpful to really identify people, but you can't just start off with Jesus in Matthew. You have to start off with talking about um, the Old Testament and how the Gospels fit into that and understand something about this so that they have a, a sense of who God is. I mean, you can talk to people about who God is, and we live in such a multicultural and diverse city now that you can talk to people about who God is, and they may not have any idea who the Judeo-Christian God is. And so you can't just assume because they say they believe in God that what they mean about God is what you mean about God. So we need to start with the beginning so that they have some idea who who God is, and that gives meaning to... Um, gives meaning to an understanding of what sin is and eventually who Jesus is and why he had to die uh, to die on the cross. And so when we come to passages like this, there is an assumption because of the context that those who were the original recipients, who were Jewish Christians, Jewish believers in Jesus as Messiah, uh, and they understood and knew the Old Testament. Matthew uses more quotes and more allusions to the Old Testament than any of the other gospel writers. And this this episode in Matthew 20, 
2241 to 46 is also recorded in Mark and, and Luke as well and is part of our understanding, very important part of our understanding of who Jesus is as the Messiah. I've titled this lesson, Whose Son is the Messiah? because that is the focal point of Jesus' question to those who are challenging him. Now, let's just go back a minute and remember the context a little bit. This goes back to a time when Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem. It's the last week before the crucifixion. He's entered into Jerusalem. Uh, he was recognized and praised by uh, by many of his followers and people from Jerusalem. As he's entering into Jerusalem, he is he is praised as the king, and he is welcomed as the king. And he is they they understand that he is the one who has come to offer the kingdom to uh, to Israel. And they are singing praises from Psalm 118, indicating that they clearly understand who he is. That's the background, and we went through a, an extensive study of that. The next day, is, and the, days, the couple of days following, as he came into Jerusalem, he's confronted by the religious leaders, by the Herodians, by the uh, Pharisees, by the Sadducees, and each group is challenging him. And we saw in Matthew 21, 28, down through 22, uh, 22, uh, that, that you have these parables that are ultimately parables of, of judgment. Each one of them develops an answer to the question, um, uh, about Jesus' authority, the Pharisee says, by whose authority do you do this? And they're not asking it because they want to know, because they're positive. They're asking it in a condemn, condemnatory fashion. They do not believe he has authority to say or do the things that he has been doing. We went through these these parables. Each one involves a father, uh, a son, or sons, and the rejection of the father's authority. And as we went through those, I pointed out how um, the, it became very clear to the Pharisees that he was, that Jesus was talking about them. In Matthew 21, 45, we read, Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They understood already that he is talking about a judgment that is going to come upon them. And so that leads to a reaction. Uh, he is speaking to the uh, Pharisees. He's not talking to the crowd. He is speaking to them and making clear that they have uh, rejected God. They've rejected God's plan. They rejected him as Messiah, and they will come under judgment. And so each one builds a case for God's rejection of the religious leaders of Israel, even as they are rejecting Jesus as his son. And they are already beginning to conspire uh, against Jesus in order to uh, seek his death. In Matthew 21:46, it says, But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. And then they decided to set up some questions to try to trap him. The purpose was either to get him to commit to a position that would violate the laws of Rome, and therefore he would be arrested, or to get him to say something that would uh, cause the crowds, the multitudes, uh, to reject him. 
And so they asked these three sets of questions, which we've been studying for several weeks. Is it, first of all, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? That's covered in Matthew 22, 15 uh, to, to uh, 25. This was the Pharisees who came together and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. That's in uh, 2215. Then the second question came from the Sadducees. And this is interesting that the Sadducees and the Pharisees in this particular situation have have come together and allied themselves against Jesus. Now, uh, I, I've been doing further reading and studying upon this, and and I didn't. I've pointed out the hostility that existed between the two, but I ran into some information this last week that that we we just don't grasp quite grasp the depth of the hostility that existed between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Both of these groups developed after the Israelites had returned from the seventy-year uh, captivity in Babylon. And in that context, as they're rebuilding the temple and completed the temple, there's the desire on the part of, of uh, Ezra and the other leaders uh, leading up through the time of Nehemiah that they need to uh, teach the people the scriptures so that the people do not fall into the trap of idolatry that they had, which led up to the... Um, uh, to, to the defeat and divine discipline by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And so as they are, um, as they've returned, what happens is you develop a couple of different groups, religious groups within Israel, and they have different approaches as to how to accomplish this end. You have the conservatives who are the Pharisees and the liberals who are the Sadducees. But then as you kind of fast forward, we come to the period where the Jews have revolted against the uh, uh, Syrian uh, leaders, the Antiochian uh, leaders of, uh, out of Syria, and they've established their own kingdom through the Maccabean revolt and the Hasmonean leaders who are extremely corrupt. And they've allied themselves, they're, they're priests, but they have made themselves kings. And this just really angered the, Phar- the Pharisees because uh, in Israel there's a separation between the priesthood and the kingship. And that's part of the background for what we're, what we see a little bit in, in our passage. But they, they had merged these together. So you have one group, the Essenes, who decide that, that they're just fed up with the whole process, kind of like some of you and, and politics right now. And they decide they're going to go live in the desert. And there's a belief that the Essenes were the background for the people who lived out in the desert at, at, uh, at Qumran. And, but the Pharisees are still present in Jerusalem and they're, they're, they're just hostile to the Sadducees. They would go to festivals and they would throw rotten fruit at the priests, uh, in the middle of the services. And that, that really endeared them to the, to the Sadducees so much so that at one point the Sadducees had 90 Pharisees arrested and they hung them all. But before they hung them, they killed their children in front of them so that the last thing they saw before they died was the death of their children. So by the time you get to the, to the time of Jesus, things had calmed down somewhat because of the power of Rome. Uh, Rome was not going to put up with all of this uh, religious uh, conflict that had been going on for a uh, hundred years or more, and so that brought a level of stability. But but you, so you see that 
there, there's no love lost between these two groups. And so when the Sadducees come along and they ask this question about the, the, the resurrection and whose wife is this woman going to be after she's gone through seven different husbands, one brother after another, according to the Leverett marriage laws, uh, and Jesus just shut them down at that question so that um, they didn't have an, an answer. The, the, we're told in verse 34, the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, and they gathered together. They're rather gleeful that this has happened. They're just happy as they can be because their enemies have shut down. Now, they think they can shut down Jesus. And so we saw the third question, what's the greatest commandment of the law? First of all, to love uh, the Lord your God with every ounce of your being, with all your soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, now, there's an Im- implied uh, um, condemnation there from Jesus because uh, as the way he develops, we went through the uh, Good Samaritan uh, parable last week, the way Jesus is presented himself as the Messiah, uh, and he is clearly not a Samaritan, so he is more obviously their neighbor, even though the Samaritan was a neighbor. It's very clear he's also Jewish, so therefore they should be loving him as they love themselves, uh, but they're plotting to kill him. So there's this undertow there of condemnation against the Pharisees because he's pointing out that they're not loving him as they should according to the law. Furthermore, if he is the Messiah and he is who he claims to be and he is God, then they're not loving God either. They have violated the covenant. So there's this very definite undertone of condemnation in the Pharisees that continues in this interchange, and it will only intensify when we get to this counter question that Jesus asks in Matthew twenty-two forty-one to 46, whose son is he? So as we look at the passage, the Pharisees are gathered together uh, to challenge Jesus, to try to trip him up, and now he's basically shut them down. The Mark parallel says that after there's the interchange about the uh, greatest commandment, uh, once again, the Pharisees were shut down, and they did not know how to, what to ask him or what to say, and they no longer would ask him anything. Um, so while they're there, Jesus uh, asks them. Now, I think a better translation of this was when the Pharisees had gathered together, because the the uh, while gathered is a participle, sunago, which is the verb form of sunagoge. Sunagoge is a synagogue. And so it's a place of assembly, the place where people come together. It's a perfect participle. I always point these things out because that's completed action. So it's not while. That indicates while something is going on, it's after or uh, when they had fully gathered together. So apparently they, after the last interchange, they sort of get among themselves and they uh, trying to figure out what they're going to ask, and they can't come up with anything. And so when they uh, complete this, then Jesus is going to ask them a question. He's going to begin to interrogate them with just one clear, precise question that will expose their rejection of the truth of the Old Testament. It will expose their rejection of God and their rejection of what the Torah taught about the Messiah. So he asks the question, what do you think about the Christ? 
Now, the word Christ is transliteration into English of the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one. It has the idea of someone who's anointed or set aside or appointed for a particular task. It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which has the same meaning, the anointed or the appointed one. So in Hebrew, when we talk about Jesus Christ, the Hebrew is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And it's important to emphasize that that's what we're saying when we talk about Jesus Christ is we're making a statement that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised anointed or appointed one from the Old Testament. And so he asked this question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? I think it's uh, we get a little bit of an insight into how Jesus talks here. We also do from the Gospel of John, and for different reasons, he had longer discourses. But Jesus would say things in in different ways. So he'll ask a question, then he would ask it again, and using a little different language. Uh, sometimes he would say things one way and repeat it and say it just a little differently, which any good teacher will do to make sure people understand what he's saying. That's why you see some minor differences between Gospels. It's not that, that the Gospel writer is putting something Jesus said into their own words or summarizing it, but because when Jesus said something, he, did, he didn't just say, say it one way. He would say it and repeat the question using slightly different language to get the point across. Uh, the reason I say that is because uh, part of what we'll see in just a minute in this passage is that this passage is also an important verse for understanding some of the issues related to the debate over the uh, inspiration of Scripture, the source of Scripture. Is scripture has its ultimate source in God or its ultimate source in man. And today we are living in a new uh, era or new stage in the, the uh, battle for the Bible. And when we talk about the battle for the Bible, we're talking about uh, the battles that have gone on, especially the last uh, 250 years or so related to the uh, authority, the inspiration, the origin of the scriptures. And this, about every generation, we go through this battle again, and this is going to be the topic of our uh, Chafer Pastors Conference next March. And the dates on that are March 13th through 15th. And this is going to be very, very important. We're going through this again. Many of us who were in seminary or out of seminary in ministry in the late 70s were familiar with a very extensive document that was put together by a group of theologians and pastors and Christian leaders, over 300 uh, of them gathered together in Chicago for a period of time and crafted an extremely extensive uh, doctrinal statement on the inerrancy of Scripture that has become the platinum standard for defining the doctrine. And yet today, many evangelicals who um, give lip service to their belief in inerrancy and infallibility don't actually uh, believe in it when you push them. And one of many of the ways that that this is exposed is in some of the some of the ways that that uh, these sayings of Jesus 
are challenged that, well, Matthew wrote it one way, Mark wrote it another way. You have scholars who say, see, the historiography in the first century wasn't as precise as it is today, so so this is fine for there to be these minor uh, contradictions. They, they don't really... Um, they don't really challenge inerrancy. Yes, they do, and what you've just said challenges your belief in inerrancy. And this is becoming more and more dominant at almost every major evangelical seminary in the country. You have faculty who have sort of watered this down. And this deals with, it indicates a somewhat low view of Scripture. And we, we really can't uh, put up with that. That's the, what the battle for the Bible is all, all about. Another dimension of that has to do also with what we're studying today, and that is the reality of messianic prophecies. Does the Old Testament really have genuine messianic prophecies? And it may surprise you that there are many faculty members and some of our favorite evangelical seminaries who do not believe that there are specific detailed or any specific uh, narrow uh, prophecies, messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. It's all just just typology. We'll get that into that in just a minute. So we get into some very, very important doctrines uh, that underlie a, a study of this particular passage. So Jesus asks the Pharisees, what do you think about the Messiah, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Now, they all believed that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. David was the, of the tribe of Judah. This is the King David of the Old Testament, the same David who fought and killed Goliath in the Valley of Elah that we are studying on Tuesday night. And so they understand that it is this David, the King David of, of Israel, who is the progenitor of the Messiah. The Messiah would become directly from his, his line. And so that would emphasize the humanity of the Messiah uh, as well. Now, Jesus isn't disagreeing with them as far as it goes because they're right, but they're only partially right. Because he, the Messiah is going to be more than just a son of David. And that is what Jesus is focusing on in this particular passage. When they reply the son of David, then Jesus is going to ask them another question that is going to put them on the horns of a dilemma. Because if he is going to bring out in this that the what David says in the Old Testament is to refer to the Messiah as Lord, putting him on the level of deity that uh, Yahweh has. That, that shows that the Messiah is not only a, uh, a human, a son of man, but he is also expected by Old Testament promises and prophecies to be fully divine. That was something they weren't willing to expect uh, to accept, and they know that this is part of what Jesus has been claiming, that he is the Son of God as well as the Son of Man. And if they admit that, yes, the David indicates that the Messiah is going to be God, then that would give legitimacy to Jesus' claims. 
And so that's the dilemma that they face. If they agree with Jesus, then that's going to undercut this, the, 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 the uh, opposition that they have uh, to Jesus. So in verse 43 we read, He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, Till I make your enemies your footstool. And then he asks the question, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Or how could he be his son if David is addressing this messianic king as Lord, who is his, who is his descendant? Now, a couple of things we need to uh, recognize that are going on in this in this passage here as something of background. First of all, when Jesus makes this statement, introduces this in verse 43, he says, how then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Now what that brings out are two things. First of all, that Jesus is affirming that Psalm 110, because that's where the quote comes from, that Psalm 110 is written by David. Now, this may surprise you, but there are a number of these evangelical uh, scholars who reject uh, any form of messianic prophecy in the Old Testament who claim also in order to come up with their alternate explanation of this passage, they say that this wasn't written by David. It was written for David or about David. Uh, but the uh, phraseology in the Hebrew is, uh, it, it says, a psalm of David, the Hebrew is Le David, and that L that uh, you heard me pronounce there at the beginning, the Hebrew letter Lamed, is called the Lamed of authorship. Over 80 times in the Psalms, there's this introductory statement, a psalm of David. Now, these these writers and scholars will agree that in those other in most of those other passages it means that David wrote the psalm but you come to psalm 110 and they say oh no this if David wrote it then you, they have a problem with their theology so they say that David didn't didn't write it and this is important because psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the new testament Psalm 110.1 is quoted several times, and Psalm 110.4 is quoted several times. This is a critical psalm, and the New Testament writers and Jesus clearly affirm Davidic authorship and that this psalm is about the Messiah. And it's sort of interesting that a lot of people who may reject the uh, a narrow, tight view of the uh, of Messianic prophecy in the Psalms uh, are, are there, there's a number of them that will be forced to admit that if any, if there is a messianic prophecy in the Psalms, it's Psalm 110. But then there's a number. In fact, I don't think that that there uh, is a single faculty member at Dallas Theological Seminary who affirms that this is a messianic prophecy in the narrow sense. 
that's where, and that's been true for a number of years. Some of you uh, ha- are familiar with Michael Rydelnik, who is the head of the Jewish Studies Department. By the way, he's going to be speaking, one of the speakers at the pre-trib conference, which is uh, Janu- uh, excuse me, December uh, 5th through 7th this year. If you have an opportunity to take off for a couple of days, uh, that would uh, be a great thing to go to. It's a tremendous Bible conference, but... Um, Dr. Rydelnik is going to be speaking, and he tells a story. Some of you heard it when I played his uh, testimony here a few years ago. That that when he first went to Dallas, he was very tuned into this whole issue of whether there's a messianic prophecy, strict messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. And he inter- he wanted to major in the Old Testament, so he interviewed all the faculty members at Dallas at the time. And he says not one of them held to a strict, narrow view of Messianic prophecy. That was in 1978. Um, This is one of the reasons many of us have said, now I was an Old Testament major at Dallas uh, as well, um, but many of us have said that when, when Satan fell, some people say when Satan fell, he landed in the choir loft because choirs have been the source of so much gossip and problems in churches, but but others of us have amended that to say he landed in the choir loft, but he bounced into the Old Testament department of our seminaries because this kind of, of departure from strict views of inerrancy and infallibility have often originated in the Old Testament departments of uh, evangelical evangelical seminaries. But here the New Testament clearly states that Jesus says that David wrote the psalm, and he did so under the inspiration of Scripture, of the Holy Spirit, that he does it by uh, by the Holy Spirit. And so we have to be reminded a little bit about uh, some of the statements that are made in, in the Scripture. For example, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God that says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness. The fact that it is God-breathed tells us two things. Number one, that the origin of Scripture is ultimately in God, and secondly, that he writes through human agency and that he is able to somehow override the sin nature and the weaknesses and and problems of human beings so that he can guarantee that the outcome is without error that it is and then we also know that it is through God the holy spirit that this process of inspiration takes place. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this is critical for us to understand the importance of, of divine inspiration here. So when we go back to our passage, uh, Jesus says, David, by the Spirit, called him Lord. So this is emphasizing that as, as David wrote this psalm, that he is writing under God's direction by means of God the Holy Spirit, even though that is not mentioned in the text. And so when, when Jesus brings this, this up, 
he then quotes from Psalm 110.1 and says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this is an extremely important passage to understand, and so we're going to have to stop here for this week and next and look at Psalm 110. We'll just get started there, but he's making a point that that the, the way the, the Old Testament passage reads is you have the first Lord, which is identified in Hebrew as Yahweh. This is the personal name of God, that Yahweh is speaking to a second person. And if you read through the psalm, it becomes clear that this second person is someone who is also divine but is the the messianic king who will be sent from Yahweh, from heaven, to the earth in order to destroy the enemies of God. Now, that means that this second Lord is someone who has a divine nature. It implies that. And that David calls him my Lord. Now, for David to do that, remember, David is a Middle Eastern Eastern, uh, patriarchal king. That means that there's nobody over him. There's nobody higher than than, than a king, a, a potentate in the ancient world in the Middle East. There's no one to whom they do uh, obeisance. There's no one to whom they would bow. There's no one to whom they would turn for uh, greater authority. And yet David is saying that this person to whom Yahweh is speaking is... Uh, his Lord is an authority over him, is a power over him. And that indicates that it would not be any human being because there's no human being that would be greater than uh, King David. So just the fact that, that Yahweh is speaking to someone else who is uh, an authority over David uh, indicates that this second person also would have to be div- divine by implication. And then what he says is, sit at my right hand. Now, the right hand is a position of honor. It, it doesn't inherently mean that the person who sits at the right hand of the king is of the same nature as the king. Some people have made that claim, but uh, towards... Uh, uh, at, at, at the beginning of Solomon's reign, uh, anybody remember who sat at Solomon's right hand? He had a throne set up for his mother, for Bathsheba. Now, she was not equal to him, but he put her there as a sign of respect and to express her, you know, her position of, of uh, honor in the kingdom. So it's not an expression that the person at the right hand is equal to the person on the throne, but that they're in a position of honor, a position of respect, a position uh, of some authority. And so this indicates that a couple of things. It indicates that this second Lord is standing because he's told to sit. And that standing position was implied that he's coming from somewhere. And now he is told to sit, and then there's a time duration put on that command to sit till, 
or until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this kind of construction in the Hebrew, this kind of grammar, indicates that there you're going to stay in this seated position, which is a position of passivity, not a, posi- a position of action. You're going to sit there until some circumstances change. And so he says, sit there until I make your enemies your footstool. So God is going to... Um, uh, destroy these enemies or defeat these enemies, crush these enemies in such a way that they will become subordinate to this second person. They'll become subordinate to him, and then something will happen. Now, we fit that into our understanding of what God, what the Scriptures predict about the future, and we'll look at this more next time. In Daniel chapter 7, we have a similar situation where you have the Ancient of Days who is on its throne, who is God the Father. And then you have, the Daniel says, he saw one like the Son of Man. That's the Old Testament background for understanding that term that Jesus used so many times. One like the Son of Man comes to him, and it is at that time that the Ancient of Days gives him the authority to go to the earth and to destroy the kings of the earth. And so that's the picture here. He's going to, the, the Father, Yahweh, is going to bring history to a concluding point. Until then, the Son is waiting until he requests of the Father, and the Father grants his request to give him authority over the kings of the earth. But the only point that Jesus is making here is verse 45. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now, that the Pharisees can't answer. But there's something else that is, that's gone on here. Remember, I went back in the review and I pointed out that as Jesus is, is talking to the, to, to the uh, Pharisees, in the exchange about what the greatest commandment is, when Jesus talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, there's an implied criticism or judgment there because he knows what they're plotting to do. They're plotting to arrest him. They're plotting to kill him. And Jesus is saying that this is a great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. So how is what you're planning to do uh, loving? How are you fulfilling this command, you who think that you are following the law all the time? And so, and, and the Pharisees already know from listening to the parables that Jesus is, is um, talking about them and has announced their judgment. And here again, he announces judgment because if Jesus is who he claims to be, then they are the enemies of the Messiah. And he has just quoted that God is going to make his enemies, that's you guys that I'm talking to, that, that, that he, God is going to make his enemies a footstool. God is going to bring judgment upon them. So just again and again and again, as Jesus is answering, uh, we miss it. It's not as, as clear uh, or overtly stated in the text, but what Jesus is continuously doing is needling them and reminding them that if he is who he claims to be, they are going to come under intense divine judgment. And so that leads to Matthew twenty-two forty-six. No one 
then was able to answer him a word. They're, they're dumbfounded. They cannot respond. From that day on, no one dared question him anymore. Now, what we have seen here, next time I'll come back, I think we need to spend some time in Psalm 110 because it's such an important psalm. We need to understand everything that goes on there. It's more than just Psalm 110. One, remember, if you were Jewish, you didn't, and, and even up until about the uh, 10th century, you didn't have chapters even in, in the Scripture. You only had... Um, uh, the only divisions, of course, were in the Psalms because each Psalm is an integral unit. But you identified the Psalms by the first phrase or the first verse. That, that's very typical today. If, if there's a pronouncement, an official document that comes out of the Vatican, the title comes from the first three or four words in the first sentence of the document. Uh, this was the way the ancient world would title things, was just taking the first uh, two or three words. You take look at the Old Testament. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. What is the title of Genesis in the Hebrew? Bereshit, in the beginning. So this was typical. So when when Jesus is referring to Psalm 110.1 here, he knows that the Pharisees under, know the whole thing. They have it all memorized. They, they, they understand everything that's in it. So he's not just challenging them in light of that first verse. There is an implied challenge in relationship to everything that is taught in that messianic psalm of Psalm 110, verse 1. And so he is making essentially the same claim that that people like C.S. Lewis, uh, Josh McDowell, numerous others have, have made, is that when you're confronted with Jesus, you have basically three options, two of which are illogical and irrational. Uh, you can either say that Jesus is a good teacher, a moral teacher, but that doesn't really fit because if you're good and you're moral, you're not going to tell people that you are the only way to heaven, that you are the life and no one can come to the Father except by you. So the claims that Jesus made counter the claims that if he's not telling the truth, then he can be just a good moral teacher. If he's not telling the truth, he was an evil deceiver. The second option would be that he is, he would be crazy. He was just deluded. He was psychotic. And he just uh, assumed these messianic pretensions. But nothing that we know about Jesus fits that. So the, the, the place of refuge that many people go in order to uh, give themselves some sort of protection from rejecting Jesus is totally stripped away. And that's what Jesus has done with the Pharisees. He's stripped away in any pretension, it's left them angry. They have examined him uh, as per um, the examination of the Passover lamb. He has uh, defeated them in every one of these examinations. He has not succumbed to any of their tricks. Uh, he has, in fact, turned those tricks back on them and exposed them for what they are. And we know from human behavior that whenever people are exposed and whenever people's uh, positions are destroyed, that their reaction is anger, and that's what their reaction is going to be. And what we'll see after we look at Psalm 110 is that Jesus is going to ratchet it up even more, and his condemnation is going to get on steroids in chapter 23, 
and he will pronounce a series of woes against the Pharisees that will leave them completely exposed. And it's at that point that they decide that something must be done immediately to get rid of this Jesus of Nazareth. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, reflect upon this passage today, to be reminded that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, and that the results of him uh, being such, being the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is that we are forced to either accept him or reject him. And there's no reason to reject him because everything that he said backed up uh, his claims, everything he did backed up his claims, and it is obvious that he is exactly who he claimed to be, the one who fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies related to uh, Messiah in terms of his first coming, and that he is the one who ultimately will return and complete uh, the fulfillment of all the other prophecies. The issue for each one of us is first and foremost to decide if we believe in Jesus, if we trust him as the one who came to earth to die for our sins. Uh, that's the issue. It's not a matter of what we've done or how we failed. It's a matter of what our belief in Jesus and trusting in the work, his person and his work on the cross. Father, we pray that if anyone listening has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would do so. Uh, at this point, that they would understand that Jesus must be the Messiah, the one uh, whom he claimed to be, and that they can have eternal life uh, by trusting in him alone. For the rest of us, it, it, it's a challenge in terms of being a learner, a student, a follower uh, of Jesus, one who learns and studies, assimilates and implements that which Jesus has taught, that we may reflect his character in our lives and be witnesses for you, shining forth as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. We pray that we'll be challenged by these things. In Christ's name, amen.